Welcome to the Elite Level Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Elaine, and this is the podcast where we explore how elite level performers think, act, and operate. As always, if you're watching this on YouTube, I'd really appreciate if you hit that like button, press comment, and subscribe. And if you're listening on any of the podcasting platforms, I'd really appreciate a five-star review. Now, as always, we've got an absolutely fantastic guest here today. Elliot, it's great to see you. Alex, thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure, Elliot. Now, for the guests out there that don't know who you are, if you could just introduce yourself in two minutes or less, tell us about you and some of your career highlights so far. Wicked. So I'm three years into a sales career. Two of those have been in tech and I've recently transitioned from an SDR to an AE. In terms of career highlights, I think I'm on a sort of journey of developing myself as a sales professional in a company that's also growing really fast. So there are loads of different anecdotes. I'm sure we can share some today, but that's a brief overview. Awesome. Awesome. So just because your current sales career has been fairly short lived, it'd be great to hear more about just Elliot, right? Personally, outside of professionally, tell us a bit maybe about your upbringing and how you actually got to the point where you got into sales in the first place. Yeah, it's an interesting one. So childhood, loads of sport, loads of football mainly. I played sort of county, had trials at Bristol City as a a highlight of my career there. (laughs) And uh, so, yeah, just really competitive, really involved in, in winning and not losing. That was kind of the thing I always loved. And then... I went to uni. I went to a, a good uni with loads of like clever people, way cleverer than me. And I, I sort of found it really exciting at the end where people were thinking about what to do. So yeah, when it came to sales, I didn't really know anything about sales. Both the parents I live with, sort of stepdad and mum are teachers. My dad's like an engineer, super tech. And so everyone around me at the time was going into consultancy. And I remember I, um, all these sort of EYs, McKinsey's, th- these big ones. I got into a, a final round interview with this sort of managing partner and at the end, he was like, so, Elliot, I, I do like you, but I don't think you're technical enough for this role. And I was like a, a little bit shot. And he was like, have you considered a career in sales? And honestly, at the time, it was like a punch in the face. My, my dad had always talked about like the business development guys with big watches. And it was never really a glamorous look that, that he sort of portrayed. And then I ended up walking into a sales assessment center the next day and got offered a couple of jobs, took one thinking I'd just do it and then go and travel with a bit of cash for summer. And just fell in love with it completely, sort of ate the mud and, and just cracked on. Wow. In, uh, really interesting one, right? And the great thing about doing these pods is I learn as much about people <laughs> as they get to learn and vice versa as well. So I want to talk about what you said about the mentality of I just always wanted to win. You know, you, you said you always wanted to make things happen. Just just be great at what you were doing, especially it sounds like you got a, whether it was a scholarship or a great placement with Bristol. So just talk to us about that mentality there, Elliot. Where did that actually come from? And when did you start to feel that that was really a true part of your DNA? I, th- I think it's like, I've always been really competitive and I'm actually really grateful to my, my dad sort of throughout my like childhood, we always used to ingrain never give in as like a weird motto. And so those two things combined, like I felt like a little bit more serious about winning than lots of people I was around. I have to correct you on the Bristol city thing. It was a, a six week trial that proudly turned into a 10 week trial, but then I did get dropped eventually. So that was, uh, that was never going anywhere. So yeah, that, that's a little bit about that. 
So it's, it sounds like your father really instilled this core principle in you, which is sounds like it's been fundamental to you continuing to start to grow and progress your career. So now you've got into sales, right? So first of all, how did you get that first role? And what was that early experience like considering it wasn't necessarily something you actively chose? It almost sounds like in a way someone threw it over the fence, you grabbed it, and then you've started to find your way ever since. Yeah, so it was an assessment center. So you can imagine like a big room there's grads all along it and there's a recruitment, there's a, the leader of a recruitment company that's managing this day and there's various activities, some like group things and speeches and things. So I, I did that and the, the, the recruitment dude sort of walked me through, he's like a really good guy. And I just remember like learning on the day about sales. He was talking about like qualifying someone's question in an interview or something like that. And I was sort of like really interested in it. So I did three interviews with clients on the day and took one of the jobs. And I, I just just remember thinking like, this is this is kind of sporty. This is exciting. I'm not sure if that answered the question, Alex. You're going to have to prompt me again, I think. No, it's a, <laughs> it's, it's a good initial answer. I, what I'm trying to understand is in that first period, what were the emotions like, right? You're, you're doing something that you didn't necessarily anticipate you were doing. It was a lot to learn. You mentioned being in an assessment center. So what were almost expectations versus reality? And when you were sitting, you know, actually doing the role in that first six months, what was the lived experience like for you? It was pretty brutal, to be honest. I remember not having a clue about sales in the assessment center, and then turning up the next week to the role. And I got given a, a sort of deck of business cards to call through old leads. And I remember just getting eaten on the phone, li literally eaten. And that continually happened. And it happened for the next three or four months. And I wasn't really booking anything. And I remember kind of feeling a pressure because I know others had left the business based on performance, these kinds of things. I knew I was fresh and, and whatever. And I kind of thought that I'd be good at it initially. And so that mismatch was really difficult. And then I sort of looked at the things I could control and I ended up just doing an hour earlier and an hour later. And I remember the, the MD, the managing director of this company ended up giving me a key so that I could come in early and, and leave late. And at month four, for whatever reason, I just had a lucky month that clicked. And from thereafter, I just com like completely exceeded performance. So it, it's a really weird story where I just literally relentlessly had a bad time I had access to like top performers and the director was great at developing me but it yeah it was it, it was it was pretty torrid it's interesting Elliot because you talk about having this lucky spell but everything I heard in that was persistence dedication hunger appetite getting a key so you could be in there early be able to stay late right and you know you also mentioned really controlling the controllables right you looked at what are the things that are within your sphere of control you you wrapped your hands around them and you started to make a difference so help me understand why you attribute a lot of the success there to luck when I was maybe hearing something different I think when I say luck, I had a couple of deals that fell on the same month, which meant I ended up being the top performer of that month. And it was like the, the month was kind of a bigger deal versus like larger sales cycles, for example. And what that meant was some of the, the salespeople in the office who'd been there for four or five years, kind of, I got this weird, like almost momentum, almost like a big win, which I think sort of changed the, the confidence of things. And so thereafter, I was the, the top performer just based on a little bit of the, the grit and activity, but also th this like sort of confidence of that turning point. 
Got it. Wow. Interesting. Because you've spoken a bit about your background and some of the lessons from your father and some of the experiences that you went through, you know, trying to build a career that was, you know, had some level of athleticism to it as well. How much of that played a role in that early experience in that first role, right? How much of that mentality did you have to call on to help you find a way forward through, you know, some adverse times, it sounds like in that first role? Yeah, I, th- I think there's loads that relates, loads that translates. And, and the never give in thing is like, it's such a pertinent one for me, especially if like you've never cold called before, for an example. Like that can be pretty hard if you get rejected the first time, the 12th. That, that's a new experience, right? So for me, it's like that, that never give in and then the wanting to win, like those two combined kind of give you a confidence that, that, that it's probably going to be okay. Absolutely. And, you know, something I've seen as a, a theme really throughout the podcast is, you know, we're obviously looking to, to speak to as many top performers, top leaders as we possibly can. Something I see and observe and hear time and time again is that level of drive and tenacity that seems to show some signs early in life, but becomes a consistent theme throughout most people's careers. And what's standing out to me already through your story, Elliot, is that same type of thing. You're very hungry, you're very passionate, you're driven and motivated, which is really, I don't even say half the battle, I think it's 80% of the battle of actually becoming great because the tools, the systems, the processes, they can all be taught, but it starts with you being hungry, driven, coachable to allow you to actually turn that theory into action. So it's just interesting hearing more about your story and how it translates to some of the things that I've seen from you being able to play a mentorship role for you over over the last few months. Now, Elliot, let's fast forward to you becoming an SDR, right? And taking that step in your career. I guess that was your real opportunity to start to, you know, really build a meaningful career for yourself. So what's your experience like, or what was your experience like as an SDR? Just talk us through it. As an SDR, so just to sort of rewind the, the bit before, I was doing like a full cycle role, not in tech. And I ended up sort of like speaking to this ex-Sandler coach who I ended up paying for. And he was, t- he was talking to me as like about career options. I didn't really know much or have anyone in the industry to speak to. Again, dad's an engineer, parents are both teachers, that kind of thing. And he, remember, he was telling me about tech, like this is the most competitive space, it's the most lucrative, you're probably going to learn the most. So I ended up joining a company, a learning company as an SDR. So I remember it was really weird because in my previous role, it was phones only. And then I go in and we had this spaceship, a, a sequencer. We had like call recording. We had like intent data, gift it. We had everything. So in, in terms of that experience as an SDR and the first thing, there was still loads to learn, but I had a confidence on how to execute and, and sort of reverse engineer number and that kind of thing. So I, I guess I came in maybe as a different profile as, as some SDRs. Got it. And and you said there was a lot to learn, right? So you've come in, you know, you've got the appetite, you're skilled on the phone. Some people will say you've got the fundamentals. There was a lot more. So what what did you have to learn? And what did you really double down on to make sure that you could go from a, a good to an elite level SDR at that time? At that time, it was specifically around planning the accounts. I'd moved from kind of selling sort of mid-market to SMB into an SDR role for enterprise accounts, which was a completely different game. I was really thankful for the mentor I had at the time that talks a lot about preparation, the things that you should be doing before you're even knocking on the door or picking up the phone. So I'd say that the, the preparation, the goal setting, the planning and, and messaging, those, those were definitely like crucial key learning moments for me. 
For sure. And and some of the tactical things, right? When we look at the SDR role, some people say it's the hardest role in sales. And I can understand why that is said. It's a lot of rejection. It's, it's a high pace. And you've just got to do the same activity day in, day out and try and drive, you know, as many meetings or whatever your success metric is. So for you, what were some of the tactical things that you found work really well with it? Either any particular messaging, any channels that you found more success with? Was it simply your energy levels? right? You're a very energetic person. Just help us understand if there are any tactical things that you found really were instrumental behind your success there. So for me, and when I sort of think about it, I think relative to maybe other reps in the team, I think because I had this sort of phone only experience, I had this confidence on the phone or a preference or a tendency to go towards the phone. So for me, that big, like I booked sort of 90, 95% of my meetings on the phone versus other reps who has sort of a 30, 30 mix of all channels. So I'd, I'd say, yeah, like phone calls, high activity, high volume calling backed by the, the preparation of the accounts. That that was like the fundamental reason that, that I would have had any success. Makes a lot of, makes a lot of sense, sorry, <laughs> especially you know my own background was very very phone centric certainly in my first role it was pretty yellow pages or a list on excel and a phone and it was alex just go out there and make it happen right and it built a lot of resilience it built you know a, a velocity based mindset but really going through that experience of being able to you know navigate a conversation deal with objections in real time and find a way to still secure an end result i think is really instrumental in anyone building a record breaking long term sales career certainly now that you become an AE and will come onto that experience I'm sure it continues to be a staple part of you being able to be successful I want to pinpoint on something Elliot you know you reached out to me to to come on part on one of the programs that I was running but beyond the program itself what stood out to me was the fact that you had the desire to want to become better. You had the desire to want to apply for something like that, get yourself around other people who have maybe achieved things that you also want to go on to achieve. So just why do you think that way, Elliot, ultimately? Because the reality is not everyone does it, right? And I've mm. been able to observe you, you know, get promoted, you know, drive better results than you were having before. So when I say, why do you have that mentality? What I'm really trying to understand is why do you feel that's important? And why do you intentionally go out there and seek new learnings and seek new opportunities in that sense? Okay. Yeah. For, for me, it's, ob it's, it's literally absurd how much information and access there is today. So the things like the, the reason that you will not achieve your goal or not reach the success that like that's kind of on you. Right. And I think it's basically like on this idea of being proactive or taking ownership. So when I think of, of even stories like this, where I've messaged someone like you who's had demonstrable success, who's way ahead of me in my career and I can get a call with you. And then there's even a structured pro I'm I'm like well ahead of everyone. And it's like something you can. So that that's the. I mean, t to me, it seems absurd when you can go on LinkedIn, you can find someone that maybe you want to be and you could maybe try and find a way of learning about them or, or getting in touch with like that access on top of all the information and access to like content online. Like you, you've got everything you need to achieve any goal that you could ever dream of. For sure. And it's interesting when you frame it that way, because I think you almost hesitate because you're thinking it's obvious, right? Everyone should be doing this, but the reality is not everyone is. So when you look around, maybe some of your peers or people that you've engaged with historically, what do you typically see or observe as to why not everyone is necessarily taking that approach? 
I think that there's probably different like levels of seriousness with like career, which is like obviously okay. But for those that are like trying to succeed and are not doing these kinds of things, I think it's probably like a lack of focus. I think that was a big learning point for me that I also got from a mentor was this idea of like goal setting, understanding like why the goal is so important. And then looking at like obstacles, why you wouldn't achieve the goal and things that can help you achieve the goal. So once you start having this like preparation and focus around the things, then you can actually be, you can sort of execute on plan rather than all this infinite information. Like, where do I start? Maybe it's sort of paralysis by access to, to loads of things. Yeah. I, I, and I asked you the question because I knew some great advice would come out of that to other people, right? To say, if you're sitting there listening to this, procrastinating or thinking, actually, should I be reaching out for mentorship? Should I be reaching out for support? Don't wait, right? Like Elliot's alluded to, it's obvious. Go out there and ask for help. There's a, you know, a surprising amount of sales leaders and people who have gone on to achieve great things that are willing to help. But if you don't ask, you're not going to get. And one of the things that's always stood out to, to me when it comes to you, Elliot, is you always ask for a little bit more. So when we were going through that mentorship program and we'd finish up, you would be the one that said, Alex, can I have five more minutes? We've come on this podcast today and yesterday you've messaged me and said, Alex, can we spend another half an hour afterwards? That in itself is really powerful, right? And again, not enough people do that, right? Just asking for that little bit more. And when you look at your deals or people are out there working on their deals, it's also asking, how can I help that customer that little bit more? What's that extra problem that I can solve? How can I add that little bit more value? And that mentality of always doing a little bit more, a little bit more each day, it's a bit like atomic habits, right? It's just that 1% edge in everything that you do. Is that a mentality that you've had to build over time or is it something that you felt has been innate in you? I learned a lot through modeling in my first job. I literally physically sat next to the top performer dude and, and just kind of like marinated in whatever he was doing. And I kind of noticed that the way he was selling was slightly different. You talked about little different bits of value throughout, like a cycle, for example. So I think I picked it up a little bit then. And then I remember you speaking of marginal gains. I think you used the the Olympic cyclist example as a way of... And uh, so, yeah, th th this theme has, has always been there. Like, what more can I do? I think once you sort of understand like the impact it can have, like the compound effect, these kinds of things, like it, like it becomes like an imperative, right? It's just, it, it would be silly not to. Absolutely. I think you're spot on. <laughs> so now let's fast forward. You, you, you built a great career as an SDR. You're putting your hand up to be an AE. Before we talk about your experience being an AE, there's a lot of people out there that were in the seat that you were in that are knocking that door of, I'm an SDR, I want to become an account exec. How did you make that happen? What were the steps that you were taking in advance of that transition to make it a no-brainer for your organization to give you that shot? I like that question. There's... <sighs> I think the best way is just to use the model of a, a sale, right? Like it, everything that you would do in a sale once you're in the seat is probably something you should be doing when you're in the SDR seat trying to close the AE role, for an example. So I think that's the best model and you can take it quite literally throughout. The things I did outside of, of sort of managing that sale, if you like, were things like marinating and, and shadowing deals. I keep using the word marinating, but shadowing deals all the way through cycle, listening and, and, and taking 
in loads of calls at different stages of the sales cycle and then managing relationships with AEs and starting to take more of the front end, the sort of qualification and discovery piece more than maybe I would have at the start of, of that role. So those are a, a few things that come to mind. Got it. Got it. You got me thinking about Sunday dinner with all this marination <laughs> here, Elliot. So now you've gotten to a stage where you, you've got to interview, right, to get this AE role, or you've got to have some kind of conversation internally, one to say, I want this role, two to say that I'm ready. How did you approach those conversations and, and make sure that you could actually drive confidence for the leaders themselves? I get that you were doing all of the actions, but it's one thing doing the actions. It's another thing having champions internally and being able to convey that you're actually ready to dismay any potential fear that the business might have that you are ready. So how did you make sure all of that was being communicated and came across? I, I think I was grateful. I was in a small company. So I think like what peers had to say about me was was kind of obvious. And maybe the way I interacted with the team was, was hopefully quite obvious as well. And then the other side of it, the other bit of, co- and, and probably something that you'd see in, in a lot of sales is the, the sort of demonstrable evidence, which is the historical data of my performance as an SDR. So those, like, those were the two key things. And then it was just demonstrating that, that I was eager for the role and the things that I'd done, the pre-boarding plan, the sort of 90-day plan that I built out for the, for the role. Awesome. Awesome. It's good to hear. What I'm hearing in all of that, Elliot, is right, you know, one, you were prepared. Two, you were really clear about what you wanted. And then three, you just started to make it a no-brainer by embodying the role before you had to make the transition, putting you in a great position to actually make that transition without as much friction as maybe others who are putting their hand up without doing that preparation. And they often say when preparation meets opportunity, then you're in a great position to actually go and make something happen. So it's a great story. So now you're an AE, right? And uh, you haven't been in the role for a huge amount of time. So just give us your raw feelings, raw emotions. What's it like being a, a relatively new AE, Elia? Well, yeah, th- thanks. It, uh, it's fun. It's There's a lot to learn. Obviously, I, I'd covered loads of learning. I'd listened to loads. You learn a lot just by being in the seat and, and taking those calls. So it's been a, a really exciting journey. I'm sort of grateful for for the team and, and mentorship and managers I have around me to support me in that. And and yeah, it's it's gone really well so far. So t- touch wood. Touch wood, absolutely. And I'm sure you've got a very exciting career ahead of you, at least from the things that I've been able to see from you so far, Elliot. So now that you are an account executive, what have been the biggest surprises in a way or the biggest things where you're now looking at saying, okay, if I could have maybe gone back, these things I'd have even better prepared for, or these are the things that I would have made sure I got ahead of. Certainly if you were advising or maybe mentoring someone else who's an SDR who wants to now take that step themselves. Yeah, the the biggest blind spots is I, I think the way I'd learn as, as sort of reverse engineered calls that I'd heard into kind of like a framework. And then I'd gone into discovery or qualification calls and tried to slap the framework on 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 a prospect. That sounds even more atrocious than it was. And so I think it's this there's like a, a, a flexibility or like kind of just being a little bit more human than using it around conversations that I think like took a little bit to click initially because I think academically I understood what a discovery call was or what a qualification call was but at the end of the day you're speaking to someone you're listening to someone you're having a conversation with someone so it was balancing those two things 
And then another thing that was crucial was managing later parts of a sales cycle. The things that I didn't, despite sort of shadowing calls and, and following deals through, didn't get too much exposure or, or time to role play and practice. So I think when those points came, they they were key moments where I ended up sort of doing like dramatic role plays before these calls or, or talking to peers to try and address those things quite immediately. Got it. I mean, what, what I was hearing partially through that is you almost matching up the theory with a level of emotional intelligence, because sometimes you go out there and you learn the theory and you learn the process and you can sometimes take away the human element of that, of recognizing actually you need to apply this theory in a way that feels authentic and natural and that actually you are have a level of compassion in the way that you're engaging with a prospect and you're not just walking them through an A, B, down to Z process which feels quite robotic, I guess, in a fashion. So uh, I guess some of that just comes over time with some repetition. And as you say, the role playing clearly played a, a big part of that. Again, now that you're actually in this seat, right, and as you start to look ahead over the next six to 12 months, what are the things that you're prioritizing to help you start to go from early stage AE to actually more progressive and eventually, you know, an elite level AE over time? The, the biggest focus that I've got is is on this discovery piece. I Unfortunately, I get to speak to sales leaders all the time. There are a number of problems in their sales teams and opportunities in their sales teams in their funnel. And a lot of them, the feedback I get is around this discovery piece. And when I say it, I don't specifically mean the first or the second call, but managing that discovery throughout a whole deal. So that that's like my biggest focus. Wow. What is it like selling two sales people and sales leaders, I'm sure there's got to be some listeners out there thinking, <laughs> what, what is that actual experience like trying to sell two sales people? It's, I, I'm so grateful. I, my first job I sold into to sales and BD directors too. And then I sold to HR uh, and I'm back selling to sales leaders. So that should sort of tell the story, but it, it's amazing. I'm, I'm learning so much. These years are so formative, like for my career and so foundational. So being able to speak to sales leaders who are managing teams of like 30 to 300 and, and sort of learning about their business, like just having these uh, I feel really grateful. And it, obviously there's a, there's a fun in it where you're selling to a sales leader, you're doing a discovery call. He's probably quite familiar with how these go or how they should go. So we can have a bit of fun with that and let them set an expectation of what the call can be and, and, and play along. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I look at you stylistically, Ali. I think one of the other things that stands out, as I mentioned earlier, is you've got a lot of energy, a lot of presence, right? And I'm curious how much of that you intentionally focus on or really double down on when it comes to, you know, your engagements with these sales leaders and your engagements with other people. Is there some, some time that you actually spend on making sure that the way you deliver information is is really compelling right high energy is that something that you practice because it certainly comes across yeah so i heard i heard someone say i can't remember who said it but they were talking about this idea of like being passionate outside of professional like this balance of we should probably be composed and communicate properly but if you're passionate about something like you don't have to hold it back and so i find like sales and i find business and growing businesses i find i truly find that interesting so when i have like a nugget from another sales leader to share with another one that i think could help them or a story of where another customer had turned around a similar these things i, I feel like that that I mean, that just gives me energy. Like this is genuinely quite exciting for me. I think it's quite exciting to have something that could help someone. So I don't really think about it. It's kind of natural. 
However, if we do a cold calling block, sometimes we might we might sort of stand up or, or have a dance to, to get going. <laughs> <laughs> I think it says a lot, right? You can feel the passion. You can feel the energy. That comes across to customers. It comes across to prospects. And this is why I say life's too short not to, one, do what you love and not to do it around people that you really enjoy, right? Spending time with and for a company that has a mission, a vision and a purpose that you can also get behind because all of this does really play into a cycle. Again, we get super dialed into the processes and then we talk about some of these intrinsic things like your drive and your motivation. But the other part of that, which I think can sometimes get lost, is the way you bring yourself to a meeting and to a session, when you fundamentally believe that what you're doing makes a difference for a customer or a prospect, and they can feel that, one, you feel amazing when you step to that person because you say, look, I'm here to solve some pretty remarkable problems for you, or I'm here to add such tremendous value to your organization that you would be remiss not to talk to me, right? And having that level of conviction in what you say makes a massive difference right and when I think of some of the biggest deals that I've done in throughout my career a lot of it has come and a big part of it has actually just been by virtue of the fact that I am so convinced that what I have is going to drive a transformative difference I can't let you not take it right because this is the difference I'm going to make and I really get that from you it tells me a lot about good decision making when it comes to the company that you've chosen and what you're representing and it's really great to see that Elliot for someone who's relatively early in their career begs the question at this point Elliot who is Elliot in 10 years you know as you see it so far if you've even thought that far ahead 10 years 10 years is is a long way Alex I've I've got ideas of some of the things that I could be doing in 10 years there's probably a lot that changes in the way I really I really want to be like an elite sales professional I just want to tick that off and and have some sort of demonstrable evidence to say that not only did I perform really well but like customer I've got integrity honesty th- these are really the things that are important for me and then I'm saying I, I sort of joined a business that had their first like SDR I was the first SDR in EMEA join a business now like 28 employees it's great so i'm learning how to build businesses too so if i can nail the sales bit maybe a bit of leadership somewhere and then how to grow these things maybe in 10 years time we'll we'll be building something that would be uh, pretty amazing and i'm sure we'd love to track that journey and support (laughs) you however we can over time now that you've been able to get in this position earlier and it's one that you know i'm sure you don't take lightly as i say there's many other people out there that would want to be in that seat and a you know craving to be able to make that transition you know what are the best pieces of of advice that you'd actually give out to aspiration and sdrs that want to take this next step to become an a what are the kind of best bits that really stand out to you that you'd advise for them the biggest thing, and, and maybe I'm sort of repeating myself here, is this idea of, of a plan or a goal or a focus. And I mean it quite specifically, and it doesn't have to be like, it doesn't matter what the goal is, right? But I think writing it down, understanding what it means to you and why it's important, like why is that even your goal? And then breaking it down into literal behaviors that you can execute on every day and hold yourself accountable to like the the difference from a a vision to to getting the vision for me is that that focus and plan so that was a, a big learning for me and i think like the one thing that would help a lot of aspirational aes is is sort of thinking about the things that they need to do to get to the place that they want to be Makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. And now you talk about when your own career, right, and the stage that you want to get to, what things and actions are you doing at the moment to help you start to take those steps towards that, you know, great career that you've already mapped out when you look ahead? 
So in, in terms of myself, I think sales is a beautiful thing because you've got a number, which is quite like a, a almost a binary way of, of measuring your success or it, quite a clear way of measuring your own success. So I use that slap on a little bit extra to, to make it hairy and, and achievable and basically reverse engineer that into execution every day. So hopefully by, by the end of the year, if I just execute on my plan and iterate along, then, then we should be in a good spot. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very, very confident about that. Elliot, is there anything that kind of ruffles your feathers or intimidates you when you look at your journey ahead? As I say, you've got a lot of energy, a lot of great confidence when you look ahead. Are there things where you say, you know, these are the things that concern me, these are the potential blockers that I can foresee, and I want to make sure I get ahead of these things as I continue to grow and progress my career? I think there's... Is, is managing more complex deals and this prioritization piece. I, th- I think I've been fortunate enough to have lots of conversations and, and have lots of early conversations and then thinking about how to balance or blend maybe larger accounts with smaller deals. That that for me feels like um, it's something I should be thinking about, like maybe planning a little bit more consciously and rather than just going with a, a sort of an assumptive model, maybe break down what what, what it should look like. In terms of worries or struggles to come in in my career, maybe in the next twelve months, I think I think that's like the number one focus at the moment. Sure, makes a ton of sense. And I know through your story, like mentorship and the support from your parents and the support from your management team, seems like they've all been a staple part of what's enabled you to get to where you are right now. So, what's your advice for people out there who maybe don't have a mentorship or haven't necessarily leaned into other sources of information? Is it something that you'd actively encourage people to to put, you know, specific efforts behind based on your own experience? Hell yeah. Like Alex, I'm, I'm grateful for everything I've learned from you and access to like phenomenal people as well. And some that are, are phenomenal but maybe don't have tens of years of experience. So I think for me, again, it's just crazy that people would like to do things in their career or have more success in their role. And there are these people out there that actually want to help and share some of their experiences and bumps. And and for some reason, the, the person that needs the help isn't, isn't going to get it. So I, I can't talk to how much I've gained from various mentorship or, or network relationships. Like it's it's been an absolute game changer. And I speak to people inside sales, even outside sales. Like th- this is... It's the how much do you learn? Like how much data do you get from a conversation where you can ask the questions and you can do the listening and they can share the bits and they can even guide the conversation sometimes. So it like for, it's a staple if you ask me. Definitely, definitely, Elliot. What's driving you right now? Oh my gosh, that's a, a great question. I've had like a really privileged life to be honest. I've had loads of opportunities. Went to a uni full of like crazy smart people. Seen bits of the world for someone quite young. So. I've had all this like privilege and opportunity and the way I see it is that I've I've got some potential and I want to see how far I can go and it might be that I, I stop here right but I think I can go a little bit further so for me the thing that drives me the most is continuously sort of pouring in and, and trying to film my potential right and you know filling your potential is is one thing but then the other question becomes like what are you doing all of this for is it solely because you want to you know suffice that feeling that you have deep in your core to say what's the best i can be is there anything broader than that right any causes when you look at the legacy that Elliot wants to leave on this world as you continue to go through year on year. Is there anything broader or wider than that? Or does it really kind of start and and land at just that fulfillment internally at the moment? 
Yeah, that that's that's a, a really important driver for me. I think like when I think of a sales career, like when done well, it's amazing. When done poorly, it's ugly, it's atrocious. So I think that a good sales career where you can help other people achieve things that they want to achieve whilst fulfilling my own potential, like those two things running in parallel, that that feels like a pretty powerful driver. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's really good and, and interesting to hear that. I want to move on to a, a topic that's a bit more tactical as it relates to some of your early experiences being an AE and actually running and operating some of your first few deals, of course, without having to mention any names of clients. Just help us understand what observations you've had in your deals, things that have worked really well for you, areas that you've seen have been early strengths versus areas where you've maybe seen a bit more friction and how you've begun to overcome some of those scenarios. Yeah, the 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 biggest learning that comes to mind when you ask that question is th- this idea of understanding like the what the why act or the the why now the the why the, the company the the three whys because i think it's quite easy to hear of like a, a sort of surface level pain but trying to understand like the implications of the pain maybe the cost of the pain like if it's even a priority maybe they've got bigger pains this kind of thing i think like that's something i'm working on quite quite intensely and 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 seeing difference in different deal cycles where one I clearly have and and one maybe I've sort of taken the the first thing the prospect has said at face value and then got stuck later along the lines or it's it's lost momentum so yeah that would be a key one one key learning yeah, I, I, we often talk about some of these, whether it's qualification criteria or process, goes back to the point that we spoke about in terms of being a human, right? Where some people try and go through processes as tick box exercises, ultimately to yeah. say, I've now done this bit, move on, I've now done that bit. When you actually really dial in and you sweat the details when it comes to, when we say an economic buyer, for example, right? People just say, oh, that's the person that signs a check versus actually that's the person who has discretionary use of funds, right? Those definitions can fundamentally change how you go about a deal. When we talk about a champion, you know, sometimes I go to people and they say, oh, a champion, that's the person that kind of likes what we do on the other side and they kind of help us out versus actually saying, well, how do we define a champion? Someone who has influence, action, right? And and actually getting to a point where you can define who that person is, and then qualify them effectively to then build them and test them. So I think the words through all of that is to encourage people to say, don't look at qualification criteria or processes or stages as just another thing to do, another, you know, tick in the box, so to speak. Sweat the detail, right? Understand why it's important to understand these things. Get intimate with your customers to really care about the problems that you're solving, why you're solving them and how you add value. And all of a sudden, sales doesn't become as complicated as it can look from the outside, right? Where you really give a damn about what you're doing, what you're solving, and actually the transformation and the difference that you can make. Does that resonate with you now that you're quite early in your career at this stage, Elliot? Yes, it does. And and I've had similar feedback. I'm selling to sales leaders, Alex. So I have similar feedback where once you you get sort of in into it really direct and, and quite curious about the the problems and maybe the ways you can solve them or the the different parts of a sale like the, it it it's biocentric you're helping them understand a problem that maybe you're more familiar with or solutions that maybe they're not aware, these kinds of things so yeah i i i really like and it and it definitely resonated with me absolutely so we're just going to touch on one or two other things Elliot, and then we'll start to wrap here but 
I'm curious to know some of your biggest inspirations in your life. As mentioned, you you mentioned your father, but you know what else out there or who else out there really inspires you and has given you this energy and this aptitude that you have, not only for life, but both your professional career as well as your personal one. So dad, even mum has sort of said the things that she wanted to do and, and done them with adversity in there, like hyper-determined, it's, it's phenomenal. So seeing these things growing up, pretty important for me. And then I think more professionally, getting access to, to mentors that have had sort of outstanding success and stories, that, that for me has been a, a game changer. I, th- I think people often underestimate like what what they could do and so hearing these stories and how they were done sort of behind the scenes in, in candid conversations some of these people are, are like key drivers I relate a lot to them and and, and think a lot about them in, in in my own journey absolutely and I think for you now Ellie I've just really got one final question right it's uh it's been a fascinating conversation and, and one I've actually taken a number of things away from but if you've had a chance to listen to any other episodes you know what's coming but it's really your best piece of advice right to the person who's out there that wants to go from good to elite level in their career what's the best piece of advice that you'd have to share to that person might be controversial but I think the the, the biggest silver bullet is just working hard I think it's that simple. Expand. Give us a little bit more on that, Elliot. I, I think like when you think of like learning and getting better and, and all these things, I think if you if you work hard, it, it does everything. It's it's activity, so you're getting more learning moments. You're doing more than perhaps you're paid for, so you, you sort of business will, will like you more, or your boss will like you more, your customers will like you more because you're doing more than what they've expected or what they've experienced with the previous ten vendors that they've spoke to. I, I I think it's kind of like a cheat code. Obviously, it's sometimes quite difficult, but if you can just work a little bit hard, then it tends to go a little bit better. Got it. It's a great way to finish. And uh, Elliot, have you enjoyed yourself? I've, I've enjoyed this. Alex, thanks for having me. What a pleasure. Absolutely. Well, it's great to have you on, Elliot, and we'll definitely look to part two at some point in the future. To everyone that's been listening, I hope that you've enjoyed this week's episode. Again, if you're watching this on YouTube, please be sure to like, comment, share and subscribe. And if you're listening on any of the podcasting platforms, really appreciate a five star review. Once again, hope that you've enjoyed and we'll see you on the next one.